for, uh, for being here today. Um, if you're new with us at Chapel Rock, I'd love to meet you when we're done. I'll be down front. Please come and say hi. I just want to greet you personally and, and thank you for being here. Um, if you're watching online, appreciate you logging in. Uh, we'd love for you to join us on site if you're local, but just uh, glad you've done that today. And I want to thank everybody uh, who was with us last Sunday for Experiment Sunday. Uh, I know that wasn't everyone's cup of grape juice, um, but I want you to know how grateful I am that you were willing to uh, experiment. Our goal, the reason for doing that, was to try a different format uh, for Sunday morning church. I wanted to see if it could work, if it would even just be something that we could maybe one day try again uh, with maybe some tweaks. Um, and I think it has some potential. Uh, obviously, we'd have to change a few things. Um, as you can see, you know, we're back to normal or in as much as this is ever normal for us. Um, and, and so, you know, we're not just going to throw out this uh, format. I, I do need you to know that everyone I talked to who's under the age of 30 thought last week was pretty cool. So in light of what Carl just said about filling the can, I just want you, I want to put that in your mind. Just chew on that. Now, there might have been someone who was 28 and thought it was the dumbest thing they'd ever seen in their life. I didn't talk to them. Um, but it is, uh, it is something that I think is, is significant. So um, if it's not your thing, okay, cool. Uh, probably not going to do it again for quite a while. But just bear in mind what I said. Also, um, one of our staff members uh, found uh, a, a PayPal cash debit MasterCard in the parking lot today near a car. So if you have one of those, I have it. Um, you should check. I'm not going to tell you whose it is. I don't want to embarrass this person. But if you have one of those, look in your wallet or your purse to make sure. And based on the name, I'm going to say purse. Um, <laughs> and uh, if your name matches the one on this card, you can have it back uh, at the end of the service. So come find me. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you for today. Thank you for bringing us together this morning in freedom and peace and safety. Uh, we're grateful, God, for the many blessings that you've given us. Mindful, Lord, of the fact that many of our brothers and sisters uh, around the world um, don't enjoy those freedoms. And so we don't take them lightly, God, and we want to use them for their maximum kingdom benefit. We pray for our brothers and sisters in persecuted countries that you would um, give them strength for their trials, that you would help us use every freedom we've got for the sake of the gospel. We pray, Lord, for the church in places where the coronavirus is uh, wreaking havoc. Um, we pray, God, that there would be um, some number of your people, just like the great plagues that swept across Europe in the um, Middle Ages and, and, and in the, the Renaissance and Enlightenment eras, Lord, that the church would, would step into the gap because of their hope of heaven, because they know that no matter what happens to them, Jesus, that their eternity is secure and, and minister to those who are suffering. We pray, Lord, that, that your people would lead the way um, in serving those who are, are dealing with this. We pray for healing for those who are affected by this disease, for protection um, for those uh, th that uh, are, are immunocompromised uh, and more likely to get it, and for all the rest of us, God, to remember to wash our stinking hands. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever been accused of something you didn't do? I remember when it happened to me. It's not fun. 
it's not an enjoyable experience. In sixth grade, I got accused by my teacher of not doing an assignment. Now, I remember doing the assignment. It was an assignment on the presidents. We had to write a little paragraph on each one. At the time, there were 40 of them. It was a lot of work. And, and um, I remember, I, I know I did this. I, I got a B minus on it because I didn't try that hard. Um, I remember doing it, but I couldn't find it in my folder. And my sixth grade block teacher, Miss Thompson, said, you didn't do the assignment. Now, the deal was in our class, on the last day of the semester, if you did all your homework, if you didn't have any zeros, you got to go watch a movie with the good kids. Um, and so she was saying, Casey, you can't go. I'm like, well, I know I did all my work. She said, you can't go. You didn't do this assignment on the presidents. I'm like, I know I did it. I'm digging in my folder. I can't find it. So, so when, when Miss Thompson got up to take the rest of the kids, you know, the good students, um, to the other room where they were going to watch the movie. Now, remember, when I tell you this, you're on my side. <laughs> when she left the room, I got up, walked up to her desk, flipped open the gray book, started looking for my name. And I'm standing there, and all the rest of the students, like these are the bad kids, right? These are the kids who normally get detention. I'm not normally with this group. They're in the class, and they're going, oh, good little boy going to die. I'm sitting there, and I, I found my name in the order. I was only looking in the left-hand column. I don't care what anybody else got. I'm looking, you know, going down the alphabet, S, okay, it's toward the bottom. And I, I found my name, and I tracked over, and, and right as my finger landed on the grade for that assignment, Miss Thompson walked in the room. Remember, you're on my side. <laughs> she said, and I quote, What are you doing? And I looked at her with deep respect and said, I found my grade. <laughs> this is totally true. She said, okay, you can go. True story. The only thing worse than being accused of something you didn't do is being rightly accused for something wrong you did do. The only reason I got off so lightly, I believe, you know, without a whooping, because back then they still did that, (laughs) was because I caught my teacher in a lie. Nobody likes being accused. We've been looking at, at John's gospel in places where Jesus just blows people's minds. And we're going to look at a time today when Jesus blew people's minds on the issue of accusation. So if you've got your Bibles, open them to John 7.53. John 7.53 is where you do that. And when you do that, when you do that, you will probably see a note that says something like the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 through John 8.11. Do you see that? Now you might have a, if, you, if you're looking at a Bible app, hopefully your Bible app will tell you this, okay? Um, the, uh, if, if in your Bible, I've got it right above the text, and then um, the, the passage is in italics underneath it. That's what we're going to look at today. What's up with that? Why is this passage different? Well, I want to take a little time today and, and talk about this, because this is not something that we spend much time on Sunday mornings talking about, 
But I think it's significant. I want you to know. I want you to be able to trust your Bible. I don't want this to throw you off, but I want you to understand this. Now, you may know that our New Testament was assembled from many different ancient handwritten copies of the original writings of the authors of the New Testament. Okay? Now, I want you to watch as Dr. Daniel Wallace, who is a global leader on the subject of hand, the handwritten manuscripts that were used to compose the New Testament, as he describes the process. Just watch him explain this. All scribes were humans, they all made mistakes, and because the printing press was not invented until 1454, no two manuscripts are exactly alike, period. Uh, all of them have differences, and there's several hundred differences between our two closest manuscripts, maybe even a couple thousand differences between the two closest. You multiply that out by all the Greek New Testament manuscripts we have, and then the manuscripts in other ancient languages. The New Testament was translated into a number of different languages early on because of missionary endeavor. They translated into Latin. We have 10,000 Latin New Testament manuscripts today. They translated into Syriac. We have at least 1,500 of those in Coptic and Armenian and Gothic and Georgian and Old Church Slavonic and Arabic and you know just this was the gospel exploding into the Mediterranean world into various tongues and languages so people could have it. We compare all that data and what we discover is hundreds of thousands of variations as to what the wording of these manuscripts is. Now, that sounds like we can't get back to the original text at all, but when you begin to realize that 99% of those variations can't even be translated, or if they can be translated, they make no difference whatsoever, then all of a sudden you say, now I'm dealing with just a few hundred differences that are significant and it, once again they don't impact the essentials of the Christian faith. Somewhere along the line this guy copied from this guy or maybe several line, uh, points down the line. But um, as I examine this and I see the differences among the manuscripts I still have to ask the question are these manuscripts generally reliable as witnesses to the original text if they're written in the second century or the 16th century are they generally reliable? So you'll have a manuscript that says, he said to them, Jesus spoke to his disciples, that's what it's talking about. A later scribe will come along and he'll want to clarify who the he is and who the them is, and so he'll change he to Jesus and them to the disciples. Now, when a third scribe comes along and he sees both of these manuscripts, who's going to leave out the name of Jesus when he's writing out what the, scribes, uh, what the manuscript said? So he's going to put the name of Jesus in there, and so you get growth through clarification and through piety and through liturgical use over the centuries. But it is not a lot of growth. One of the most remarkable things about New Testament manuscripts is this. Over the 1500 years we have of the copies being done by hand of New Testament manuscripts up, up until the time of the printing press, we have a growth that we'd expect. It's kind of like a snowball going down a hill. It's going to pick up all sorts of stuff. But how much growth do you have over those 1,500 years? 2%. That's how much the manuscripts have changed over 1,500 years. Superintended um, through this whole thing. Th this passage is one of those that is in some ancient manuscripts, but not all of them and not the oldest of them. Okay? And I, I'm taking a little time out of the message today that we could spend on 
application or interpretation or whatever so that you will understand this process. I want you to understand how your Bible's put together because this matters, okay? Um, this story that we're going to look at today is absent uh, from many of the major Greek manuscripts that bear the strongest, earliest witness to John's original form. In those passages, the oldest manuscripts we have, John 7.52 is followed by John 8.12, okay? With one exception, in the Eastern Church, so Eastern Orthodox uh, believers, no Greek church father mentions this passage for a thousand years. It's, it's about the time of the Great Schism of about a thousand AD before this pops up in any Greek passages. But the story is alive and well in the Western Church, the Roman Catholic and then the Protestant Church. Here, here's how this happened. When Jerome began working on the Latin Vulgate, Okay, the Vulgate is the first translation of the whole Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin. It was done by a guy named Jerome. When he began doing this, he says that he found this story in many uh, Greek and Latin codices. A codex is the precursor of our modern book. Uh, and he says this in his work against Pelagius, chapter 2, verse 17. He included it in the Vulgate. It was the first time it appeared in a, in a bound copy of the Bible. And that's how it entered into the mainstream Western church. You have it in your Bible because Jerome thought good to put it in his. All right? When Jerome was doing the Vulgate, he stuck it in. That's why we have this story. Okay? So here's the question. Did this actually happen? This story about Jesus and a woman caught in adultery, did it really happen? Well, Eusebius, who's the church's first historian learned a, a story from a man named Papias. Papias lived from 60 AD to 130 AD. So Papias and the apostle John overlapped. According to Eusebius, they knew each other. And Papias says he heard a story from John about a woman who was maliciously accused in front of Jesus regarding a sin that she had committed. So we have people who knew John saying they heard it from John, a, a story that sounds remarkably similar to this. John didn't write this. The vocabulary doesn't match. The style changes a little bit there. He uses some words that are only unique to Luke. Um, John didn't write it, but he may have preached it. John may have used this story as a sermon illustration in his preaching. He just didn't include it in his gospel. Someone who heard him tell it thought, nah, it goes in there and stuck it in later, okay? I believe, and many scholars believe, this is a true story. This happened. Jesus did this. John just didn't write it when he was putting his gospel together. And I just want you to understand that. I, I, I want you to have faith in your Bible that's reliable, that you can trust it. So what is going on in this passage? Where does this fit? I believe that John 8, 2, we'll read this in a little bit, is parallel to Luke 21, 37 through 38. Look at this with me. Luke 21, this is the end of Jesus. This is the last you know, week of Jesus' life. It says, every day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night at the Mount of, on a hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. All right? I believe these verses describe the same event that's happening in chapter 8, verse 2. And you'll see the parallel when we read it, okay? The, this scene happens... Early in the morning on the last week of Jesus' life before he dies on the cross. That's when this happens, all right? John doesn't include it originally because we're not there yet. <laughs> this is still pretty early in John's gospel. We're not quite to this point. It's, it's, it's a few chapters away before we kind of turn the corner and head to the cross, okay? 
So, so Jesus has been teaching at the temple the day before this. Um, the, the chief priests and, and uh, Pharisees sent guards to arrest Jesus. They couldn't do it. The guards couldn't do it because they're captivated by his teaching. They, 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 the guards go and they're, they're sent to arrest Jesus and they come back empty-handed. And their guys are like, dude, what up? <laughs> That's not exactly what they said, but it's close. And they're going, they said, no, nobody ever talked like this guy. Like, guys, we sent you to get him. <laughs> and like, you didn't hear him. He, people are captivated by his teaching. That's where we pick up the story. Look with me at John chapter 7, starting in verse 53. Then they all went home. Those are all the people at the temple. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. Rabbis sat to taught. He's taking the position of a rabbi. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, or in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Actually, he didn't. He, he said they needed to be executed, but he never said to stone them. They're, they're already making up stuff about what Moses said. <laughs> it just says that they had to be killed for their sin against the law. He never said stoning was the way. They said Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. We have no idea what he was writing. No clue. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. The story could hardly be more dramatic. The Pharisees quote Moses and then directly challenge Jesus in public, in the temple, to either agree or disagree with the law of Moses. The crowd is listening intently, and the Roman soldiers are watching. It's a trap. This is a trap. If Jesus sides with Moses and gives the theologically correct answer, the Pharisees, listen to me, the Pharisees will still have him arrested because only Rome had the power of capital punishment. The law required that this woman, and the man, by the way, be put to death. So if Jesus says, yep, kill her, they'll, they'll go, hey, soldiers, come here, get him. He said that she has to die. But if Jesus sides with the woman and shows her compassion and, and does something that all the crowds will like, the Pharisees will say, see, he's a heretic and a false teacher. Let's kill him. Because that's what you do in the law with false teachers. It's a trap. They think they've got him on the horns of a dilemma. And then, then, Jesus stoops and writes in the dirt with his finger and the whole thing falls apart. 
I love this. I love this. Jesus says two mind-blowing things about accusation here. One to religious people and one to worldly people. Here's the thing he says to religious people. Put your rocks down. That's not exactly what he said, but you get the point. Jesus is effectively saying they don't have the right to do what they want to do. The Greek construction of the sentence, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, makes it clear that these men are making a legal claim. They're making a claim against the law of Moses. They believe that they have the evidence necessary, required by the law, to convict the woman. Well, what kind of evidence do they need? What does the law say? The law says that in order to protect, that this is, you need to understand this, get your context right. In order to protect women in the ancient world, so that their husbands would not accuse their wives unnecessarily, the law required um, strong testimony from two witnesses who saw the faces of these two in, how should I put this delicately, intimate proximity with appropriate physical movement. They had to make positive ID and literally catch them in the act. Okay? And they had, these witnesses had to see the same thing at the same place at the same time so that their testimony would be identical. The reason this is in the law is to protect jerks from accusing their wives of, of adultery when they just want to trade up for a newer model. This is actually, the law is designed to protect women who effectively in that culture had almost no rights. It actually gives them more rights than they had in any other culture in the ancient world. Now, Think about this kind of evidence. We have to see their faces. We have to see them in intimate proximity. We have to see appropriate body movements. That, to get that kind of evidence, almost requires you to set a trap. You've got to create the situation for this to happen. And so Jesus responds with this statement, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What's that mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is that you have to be sinless or morally perfect to hold someone accountable. That's not what this means. It gets used that way by our culture. People say that all the time, right? Let any who's without sin cast the first stone. You said that because I caught you doing something wrong, you rebel. That's not what this means. This is almost certainly a reference to Deuteronomy 17.7. Look at this. In the law of Moses, it says, the hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death. And then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. The reason God commands this is to create a people who are separate and different and distinct from the world. Do you know, what, you know what's happening here? You know what's happening? Jesus is calling their bluff. They're trying to get him in trouble with the religious leaders for not obeying the law. They're trying to also get him in trouble with the people for not being compassionate. And if they can, they'd love to get him in trouble with Rome for not obeying Caesar. And he turns it around on them and says, well, according to the law you just quoted, you caught her, you kill her. Right? Mic drop moment. I love this. The brilliance of Jesus' response just blows my mind. He's so clever. He's so brilliant. It reminds me of a story I heard about a couple went and stayed at a nice bed and breakfast. 
And they, got, they stayed there about three days, and they got their bill. And, and, and the, on the bill, it says fresh fruit, $150. And every day when they woke up, there, there was a, fresh bas- a basket of fresh fruit in their room. And, and, the, and the man's looking at the bill, he said, what, fresh fruit, what is this? He said, well, this is for the fruit basket in your room. He said, we didn't order the fruit basket. We, we didn't eat any of the fruit. He said, well, it's not my fault, it was there. So the guy takes his bill and, and, and subtracts $150 and, and writes wife on there and hands it back to him. He says, what's this? He says, I'm charging you 50 bucks a day for kissing my wife. He said, I didn't touch your wife. It's not my fault. She was there. You know. <laughs> Jesus is mind-blowingly brilliant here. But the point of the narrative is not for you to be impressed with how clever Jesus is. The point is that Jesus is leading by example, and here's how. First of all, he's teaching them that while God's standard of righteousness does not change, God is still a God of mercy. As Paul writes in Galatians 6.1, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. So Jesus is leading by example. He's telling him God is a God of mercy. Secondly, even though he wasn't there to witness the sin in person, because Jesus has access to the omniscience of the Father, he he alone has the right to judge her. He knows what was going on, but he doesn't. Instead, he literally, I mean literally, saved her life. And third, this whole time, by stooping to write in the dirt, Jesus has more or less kept himself physically lower than the woman. Think about that in a culture of honor and shame and power dynamics between men and women. He's physically, literally kept his body lower, showing his humility in that moment. Friends, the longer I know Jesus, the more I'm, I'm just blown away at his humility. he's, He's leading by example here. Jesus chose to humble himself in order to restore this sinful but vulnerable woman. So what's that mean for us? Church, it's time to drop the rock. You you are never, ever going to persuade someone to follow Jesus while you're chucking rocks at them. We tried that once in the Middle Ages. It's called the Crusades. It doesn't work. You better repent. If you do, I'll quit throwing these at you. Church, drop the rock. See, religious people, and I know this because I are one, tend to have one of three reactions to the sin in our world. One is disgust. Don't get me wrong, sin is disgusting, and some of it more than others. All of it is repulsive to a holy God. And yet Jesus does not respond to her by saying, Ew, gross, stay away. We don't hear that from Jesus. Instead, he receives her into his presence. Treats her humbly. Listen, when you can respond to a sinful person with hospitality rather than disgust, then you've learned to drop the rock. Sometimes we respond with anger. Sin can make us angry, and it should. I get angry when things I care about and people I care about are mistreated because someone else acts out in their pain. Jesus doesn't seem to do that. The only time he gets angry at sin is when it's from religious people. 
And when you can respond to a sinful person with compassion rather than anger, you've heard the expression, hurt people hurt people. And learning to have a response of compassion rather than anger, then you've learned to drop the rock. And thirdly, oftentimes religious people can respond to sin with pride or self-righteousness. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I would never. It's really hard for me to bite my tongue when I hear that. Because what I want to say is, you don't know that. It's been said that many of us are one bad day away from prison. And when you can respond to a sinful person with love, which seeks their highest good, rather than pride, which seeks its own good, then you've learned to drop the rock. Jesus' love for sinners gives him the right to say to us, put your rocks down. But that's only half of it. Jesus also says something to the world. He says, put your sin down. The second mind-blowing thing Jesus says here is to the woman. He tells her that she needs to live a different kind of life from then on. He says, put your sin down. The whole time, through this whole story, Jesus never calls into question the truth of the accusation. Now the Pharisees know Jesus. Remember we said earlier that even though this is early in John's gospel, he didn't write it. It was added in later. But this happens late in Jesus' ministry. This is the final week of his life. The Pharisees know Jesus by this point. They know his reputation and they know better than to try to risk being caught in a lie. The text indicates that the woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now not to be too blatant, but you can't commit that sin by yourself. All right? And so this has led many people to ask, well, where's the guy? Leviticus 20, verse 10, Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, command that both participants were to be executed. And so that has led many scholars to speculate that the guy in this either is one of the religious leaders who's being protected by his hypocritic buddies, or he was hired by them to seduce this woman to set a trap for Jesus. She is a pawn in a power play by the religious leaders of Jerusalem. We don't know for sure. Remember, this scene happens early in the morning, if, if again, it's parallel to Luke 21. So if these two were caught in the act... It's likely that the religious leaders knew where this was happening, knew when to show up, okay, and they caught them and have held this woman captive most of the night in order to force this confrontation with Jesus. I know, I know, this whole story is just slathered in double standards and corruption and misogyny. But it's, it's vital that you understand this, okay? Jesus never calls her guilt into question. And believe it or not, this is where the message gets uncomfortable. The Bible consistently affirms from beginning to end, that you are personally responsible to God for your own sin. And it doesn't matter why you did it. 
It doesn't matter that someone tricked you or trapped you or seduced you or sucked you into it. None of that matters to God. You are accountable for your sin. God will deal with them for the sin of leading you into sin. Jesus is really clear about that in Matthew's gospel. He said it'd be better for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the sea if you lead somebody into sin. God will deal with them for that, but you still did the thing. And you're accountable. And so for the first time, Jesus speaks to the woman. He says, woman, where are they? Now, we don't know, is it just Jesus and the woman? Are the 12 there? We don't know. Think about this. Jesus is effectively alone with an adulteress. And he speaks to her with the same level of respect that he showed his own mother back in chapter 2. The word translated woman is the exact same address that Jesus gave to his mom, Mary, back in chapter 2. When, when the change water into wine, woman, what to you and to me? Same word. He's alone with an adulteress, caught red-handed adulteress, and he shows her the same level of respect that he showed his mother. Jesus then speaks, asks, are there any who condemn you? Condemn means judge, like final judgment. And she says, nobody. So Jesus says, I won't judge you either. Donald Najah in Leadership Journal says this. He says, the natural response when someone confronts us is to deny the sin and be angry at the accuser. Listen, here's something that should blow our minds. The woman in this text does neither one of these things. She doesn't do either one of these things, does she? She doesn't deny the sin. She doesn't seem to express anger at the people who are accusing her. She recognizes that Jesus saved her life and that she is, in fact, guilty of what she's accused of doing. And that's why, church, that's why Jesus was able to say to her, go and sin no more. Now, the NIV doesn't do the best job of translating that. They put the word now with the word go, go now. The English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, the Revised Standard all do a better job because the word now actually goes with sin, the, the verb for sin. It's go and sin no more. From this point forward, no more sin. Literally, put your sin down. Put, put, put it down. Let go of it. Listen to me, Jesus shows her mercy and grace first. Then commands her, and it is a command, it's in the imperative tense, to sin no more from this point forward. And what gives Jesus the right to command this is that he has already saved her, in this case, literally from death. And so his final words, then neither do I condemn you, does not imply that she was innocent. <laughs> they simply state his willingness to forgive her. Jesus doesn't take sin lightly, but sinners are offered the opportunity to start over, and you're going to be offered that opportunity here in just a little bit. The mind-blowing thing that Jesus is still saying to worldly, sinful people after he died for them on the cross is, drop your sin. So what is it? Well, it might be adultery. It might be literal adultery. Maybe the mental adultery of looking at pornography. It could be any form of choosing physical pleasure over obedience to God. See, the Bible routinely pictures sin as a form of spiritual adultery. And when what Jesus says 
about how to live matters more to you than what your gut feels, then you'll be free of the condemnation of adultery. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe that's your thing. You know, that there's something else, some outside substance or activity in control of your life. I'm convinced that addiction is simply a modern form of idolatry. You're worshiping an idol. And when knowing Jesus matters more to you, it's better to you than any high, then you'll be free of the condemnation of addiction. And this is not a word, but we're going to make it up and call it one. What if it's affluenza? Stuff. You know, addiction, adultery, those are kind of salacious. There's a form of sin, though, that cleans up real nice. (laughs) It's our love of stuff. Some of us have a terminal case of affluenza. And when seeing Jesus use everything you have, own, and are, matters more to you and blesses you more than a fat wallet and a 401k, then you'll be free of the condemnation of affluenza. Jesus is taking the death that we deserve, and that's what gives him the right to say, put your sin down. Many of you have heard of the veteran comedian and improv actor Patton Oswalt. He's also known as the voice of Remy, the mouse, in the Pixar movie Ratatouille. Patton is known for having a ready comeback for anyone heckling him or giving him grief at his stand-up comedy shows. But one particular time, his response caught an antagonist by surprise. It started with a sarcastic tweet from him at President Trump. One of the president's supporters named Michael Beatty tweeted back in response, lobbing accusations and insults at Oswald. And out of curiosity, and let's be honest, probably to get ammo for a comeback, Oswald starts scrolling through Beatty's Twitter feed. And what he found not only took him by surprise, it prompted him to do the following amazing thing. He tweeted, oh man, this dude just attacked me on Twitter and I joked back, but I looked at his timeline and he's in a lot of trouble health-wise. He's been dealt some terrible cards. Let's deal him some good ones. Click and donate, just like I'm about to. So the link that followed was to a GoFundMe account dedicated to help cover the burgeoning cost of care for Beatty's health condition, which included diabetes and ketoacidosis. Because of Oswald's efforts at donation and promotion, the campaign began trending on social media and has since exceeded several times over his initial goal of $5,000. This is how the guy responded. Michael Beatty responded to Oswald with this. You have humbled me to the point where I can barely compose my words. You have caused me to pause and reflect on how harmful words from my mouth could result in such an outpouring. Church, that's what can happen when you put your rocks down and love people into the kingdom. And world, you can be right with God no matter what other people think about your sin. There's an opportunity for a fresh start with Jesus. See, here's what I've been driving at all morning, and we're done. We don't have the right to throw a rock, nor do we have to fear the accusation of rock throwers, because on the cross, Jesus canceled out both. That's what the cross does. That's what his death on the cross, in our place, for our sin does cancels out the accusations of the rock throwers 
and commands us to put our rocks down. The punishment for sin has already been meted out on the cross. Have you claimed that today? Have you claimed the lordship of Jesus today? If not, I'm going to invite you to come while we sing together. Please stand with me. Maybe you have a prayer need or or want to talk to somebody. Our decision counselors will be down front. You can go to the next step room. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been chucking rocks at people and instead of coming forward, you need to step out in the hallway and make a phone call and say, hey, I am so sorry. We're going to sing. I don't know how God's leading you today, but I'm going to ask you to respond as he leads you this morning. And you do that as we sing together.